Dr. Dale on Quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordian Sons Outfitters. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's episode of Dr. Dale on Quail. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. Thank you for spending time with us today. You know, weather has a tremendous impact on the plight of Texas quail. Dale's special guest today makes his living studying weather and communicating about weather. He's also passionate about quail and quail hunting. It's Pete Delkus of WFAA-TV in Dallas. Let's go to Dale with his special guest. Well, thank you, Gary, and belated Happy New Year's to you, too. And uh, while we're getting started here, a shout-out to you and your crew there at Texas Farm Bureau for helping us produce a quality audio product. We appreciate y'all's cooperation on that. We're going to talk about something that's always on our mind. If uh, if you're one of three groups, those being cotton farmers, quail hunters, and those that follow prescribed burning, and that's weather, because weather is such a key driver in in those three things and a lot of other things that we do too. For those of us here in West Texas, and indeed most of us in Texas, I once heard the climate of West Texas characterized as quote continuous drought interrupted by periodic flooding, end quote. And that seems to be uh, pretty much spot on because uh, we, we started off 2021 dry, but then we had a wonderful April, May, and June, and then it just shut off tighter than a jug in July. And we really hadn't had any rain since that time. Uh, I live in here in San Angelo, and if you've uh, familiar at all with San Angelo, San Angelo's favorite son was a novelist by the name of Elmer Kelton. And Elmer Kelton was a Western novelist, and he wrote several great books, but probably his most famous was The Time It Never Rained. And we're about to the point now where we're looking for version 2.0 of that, because, again, we've, we've been so dry. We'll be talking with somebody that can uh, bring us up to speed on weather and the factors that affect the weather, and, again, those that affect quail abundance. Historically, our quail populations here in West Texas have occurred on about a five- to seven-year cycle. And you might ask, why? Well, we're going to delve into that a little bit more, but I think it has to do with some of these El Nino Southern Oscillation Cycles. And historically, if we want to think about the fire frequency that uh, shaped the the rolling plains, and again, much of Texas, uh, when the indigenous Americans would be setting fire and taking advantage of natural fires, those occurred on about a five- to seven-year frequency. So again, it's a weather-driven cycle. And we're going to talk more about that in just a second. Our guest today is certainly no stranger to those of you that have been involved with Park City's Quail or those of you that live in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. Our guest today is Pete Delkus. Pete is a meteorologist and the weatherman on WFAA-TV. Welcome aboard, Pete. We're glad to have you. Good to be here today, Dale. How are you doing? I'm doing great, except for the fact that we're kind of in an endless summer. We're taping this podcast uh, in late December, and only recently did we have a killing frost in West Texas. So it's been a short-sleeved quail season, and generally that doesn't jive with really great quail hunting. No, and you know, and for those of us like me that have uh, <clears throat> allergies, and uh, I'm allergic to ragweed, which you know how much our little quail love ragweed. I always loved the first freeze, and uh, yeah, uh, in Dallas-Fort Worth, the average first freeze is November 22nd, and we were like three weeks late 
for having one. So, uh, yeah, the whole state, not only North Texas, but uh, the whole state, you know, it's, it's this endless summer that just keeps going. And we're going to talk more about that in a minute and get your ideas on that. Is it just happenstance or is it form and function kind of thing? But Pete, before we get started, why don't you give us a little biographical sketch of yourself? Well, I'm from uh, I'm from Southern Illinois. I've I've lived in uh, Dallas uh, for 17 years. I've been at WFA for 17 years now, which it's like, boy, where'd the time go? But uh, uh, born and raised in Collinsville, Illinois. And I tell people I'm from St. Louis because nobody knows where Collinsville is. And if they ask where, I say, well, I'm from across the river in Illinois. So yeah, I'm from Collinsville, Illinois. I grew up there. My family all lives back in the St. Louis area. And uh, Went to high school there, went to college, at my, got my bachelor's degree in television, radio, communications at uh, Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville, which is just outside of St. Louis, probably 15, 20 minutes from downtown St. Louis. Uh, and then uh, a number of years later, I went back to school. You know, Dale, I said, uh, you know, at our age, never say never, right? Because I vowed I would never, ever go back to school and get another degree and then I went back to school for my master's in meteorology and uh, yeah, at Mississippi State, and uh, and then I've been certified by the American Meteorological uh, uh, Society and the National Weather Association. So I have my two professional seals, and I started doing uh, meteorology in the uh, summer of 1992 in Orlando, Florida. Worked there for four years, worked in Cincinnati for nine years, and here in Dallas for the last 17. Well, summer of 1992 was a pretty good one for us here in West Texas, and that was 91-92 were great quail years. Uh, we haven't been on quite as good a roll here the last couple of years. Pete, I mentioned that you're an integral part of the Park City's Quail Program and Banquet, and I know that's coming up here in a couple of weeks on March the 3rd. Um, let's brag just a little bit about Park City's Quail and what that event does for quail conservation. It is it is truly conservation's greatest night. There's no other organization in the world that raises the type of, of money. The, the, the dollars that we raise that one night blows every other uh, conservation organization away. So, yes, it is truly conservation's greatest night. Uh, we usually raise – well, we always raise over a million dollars, you know, in a couple of hours, uh, and it's all for quail conservation. And – you know, and we're, we're different in that uh, every dollar that we raise, uh, all of that money is put back into quail research in the state of Texas. We're not raising money in Texas and then sending it to some faraway state. The money that we raise uh, stays right here in Texas, and the folks that are our members and our uh, that, that have supported us for years, they can actually we can show them exactly where those dollars are going. And so for us, we feel like we have a unique organization because we raise so much money and it all stays right here at home. And uh, all of us like that. Well, as one of the beneficiaries of that generosity, the, the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, I always say that Park City's quail is the wind under our research wings. And we wish you all the best at your banquet here coming up in a couple of weeks. For those that have never been, now, now picture this, you're going to have 1,000 to 1,200 people uh there's gonna be everybody's gonna be in good spirits uh there's a lot of great auction items so there's a lot of banner back and forth at the tables and yet pete you're charged with riding herd and serving as master of ceremonial <laughs> and you do a one job i mean it's worth the price of admission just to see how well how good a job you do at that and that is not an easy task 
Well, we, we put, uh, I don't even want to add up how many hours, you know, and, and none of us get paid to do this. We're just passionate about quail hunting. So we put in, I, I don't even want to know how many hours uh, I put in or the rest of the, uh, the rest of the folks put in each year, but we do it because we love it. And we do it because we know where the money goes, but, but our, our event each and every year, which is, you know, the, the highlight is the, the T Boone Pickens lifetime sportsman honoree. Uh, and our, um, it's a party is what it is, Dale. It's a party. And we raise over a million dollars every year, and it is one heck of a party. And no one walks out of there unhappy. The, the food is great, the the drinks are great, the show is fantastic, and it is it is truly a it's my favorite night of the year. I mean, it's the it's the most fun I have at any event I do every year. Nothing's even a close second. And I'm sure they're already sold out. But if uh, people wanted more information, they can go to ParkCitiesQuail.org and find out more about that uh, bonanza that they'll be having on March the 3rd. We sell out every year like within a week or 10 days. So the moment the tickets go on sale, if you don't get your tickets, you know, like within 10, within two weeks or less, you're probably going to be out of luck. It's that popular of an event. And we have resisted moving it to a larger venue to accommodate more people because for us, it's more about the quality than the quantity. We want it to be a high quality event, a um, where you know we don't want to have five thousand people there or two thousand people. As you said, it's about a thousand, maybe maybe twelve hundred most at the most, and uh, we want it to be uh, intimate enough that people uh, feel like they're you know they're just a, a big part of the night. And, and so far, mission accomplished. Well, I certainly look forward to seeing you there uh, on March the third. Uh, we at the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation have also uh, found a bonanza in that we added Pete to our board of directors about two years ago. And uh, as a as a director, obviously you're charged with helping us raise money and set policy. But I told Pete when he signed on, all we wanted was about 28 to 34 inches of rain a year. We think he was doing a good job. <laughs> We're going to talk about today's podcast and that being weather. And as Mark Twain said, everybody talks about the weather, but nobody does anything about it kind of thing. So it's certainly always on our mind out here. Pete, I'd like to start our discussion because sometimes we confuse weather with climate. So from a meteorologist standpoint, would you contrast those two terms? Yeah. So, so the difference between weather and climate is simply a measure of time. Okay. So if you think of weather, weather is what conditions of the atmosphere or are over a short period of time. So that would be like the, the seven or the 10 day forecast that the weather person does on the news. That's, that's weather. Okay. Climate is how the atmosphere behaves over a relatively long period of time. So for, so weather is like your seven or 10 day forecast. Climate would be like, what are the averages over the last 30 years? Those averages would be climate. 30 years or longer would be climate. So again, the difference between weather and climate is simple. It's just a measure of time. The short time, five, seven, 10 days, that's weather. Climate is 30 years or longer. Well, let's just start off, Pete, with uh, what do you foresee as your prediction for 2022? I mean, we've again, we started at 21 looking really good. The habitat looks super but the quail populations just basically suffered. They did not 
but we're not up to par because part of that being how dry it was, had a, we've had a dry winter at least up to this point. Or is that going to continue? Yeah, there's a we have a La Nina advisory uh, in effect right now. I know of computer models we're pointing to to a La Nina weather pattern, and 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 La Nina here in Texas is um, it, it's when the uh, Pacific Ocean, the Equatorial Pacific, is cooler than normal. So when the Equatorial Pacific is cooler than normal, we we move into a La Nina phase. Okay, and what La Nina means for Texas is warmer. Than, it's mainly a winter into the spring type of an event. So La Nina for Texas is warmer than normal and drier than normal. Uh, for other parts of the country, Montana, for example, it's wetter than normal and cooler than normal. But for Texas, when we have La Nina, it means we're going to have a warmer than normal winter, uh, early spring, and a drier than normal winter and early spring. And we're seeing that play out right now. You know, we started a transition into La Nina, you know, uh, 60, 90 days ago. Uh, and all the latest uh, model data right now continues to show that, you know, this isn't going to, uh, it's not going to slow down. There, some of the models are indicating we could transition to a neutral phase. You have La Nina, you have El Nino, and you have neutral some of the models are showing that we could transition to a neutral phase at some point in spring 2022, uh, which would mainly be, you know, that of course would be, uh, you know, let's say April, May timeframe, we could transition to neutral, but right now La Nina is favored uh, right through, uh, right through the entire upcoming winter. Well, as someone who's spent all their life in the rolling plains, I much prefer the counterbalance, the El Nino to the La Nino. I to the La Nina, I equate El Nino to being El Grino, and uh -huh. certainly we need up of compensation rainfall-wise because we haven't had it the last seven months. You know, you know, Dale. One thing, one thing to note with La Nina. I mean, no two La Ninas, no two El Ninos are ever the same. There's always exceptions to the rule, and and I've done a lot of a lot of work with research into what La Nina and El Nino or or a, a Enso neutral phase is in Texas. And and what we've determined by looking, you go back as far as you know, record keeping has begun, uh, has taken place, and you can look at La Nina in Texas, and and three out of five. So I've looked at the last three out of five La Ninas, and then I went back and looked at the last twenty. But if you break them into five year categories, it it goes back every 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 time, and so the 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 data is 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 identical. Three out of five are your classic. La Ninas, okay, which is warmer than normal and drier than normal. But that classic La Nina allows for within those remember, meteorological winter is December, January, and February. Okay. We don't we don't do and it, we keep track meteorologically uh, because it's just easier to keep track of a month as opposed to winter begins, astronomical winter begins on December twenty first, typically, give or take a day. But but when you look at these these weather patterns, these La Ninas, three out of the five La Ninas are warmer than normal and drier than normal. But within those three out of five, we have we always have a week or two where all heck breaks loose, like last winter. People think last winter they're like, oh my gosh, that was it was a La Nina winter. But Pete, it was so cold. Well, other than uh, that seven day stretch, we were two and a half degrees warmer than normal and certainly drier than normal. Uh, for all of our winter. So if you take out the, that seven days, it was just your classic La Nina. 
where it's just warm and dry. But you figure in those those seven, maybe 10 days of those extreme temperatures and the precip that we had, now you're looking at a period of time where that winter turns out it was uh, colder than, drier than normal for sure, but colder than normal by a half a degree in, in North Texas. And the rest of the state's almost identical. It followed the trend. So there's always exceptions within the rule. Um, and then you have, that's the three out of five. So a typical La Nina, you know, warmer than normal, drier than normal. And, but you have that one memorable event for folks. That's classic La Nina. Then you have the other, remember three out of five, what happens on the other two out of the five? Well, those other two oftentimes are wetter than normal. Or maybe they're drier than normal, but they're colder than normal. So there's, you know, so you can't, and you know, Dale, with science, you just, there's, there's really no ironclad, boom, this is what it is. I mean, there's always variations with this. And the same thing applies to La Nina or El Nino. You know, El Nino, that's when the equatorial Pacific is, is warmer than normal. And when it's warmer than normal, uh, for us in Texas, we're wetter than normal and cooler than normal when the equatorial Pacific transitions to that. So, uh, and three out of five El Ninos are classic, but then you have the exceptions. So, you know, it's a crazy world of weather that we live in, right? Pete, you mentioned the El Nino Southern Oscillation, or ENSO, as the acronym is. They've made a, I mean, your colleagues, the climatologists have made a believer out of me. They're pretty good at, they seem to be pretty good at predicting those. And you referenced making, uh, a while ago you talked about going back and, and reviewing some of the historical La Nina events. Is there a website, is that is that National Weather Service, or, or where is that that you can go and look at, for example, 1964, was that a La Nina year, or are those data available? They're available, but it took us quite a bit of digging to find them. There's there's no one site that I'm aware of, and if if it exists, I'd like someone to let me know. But there's no one site that that tracks, you know, historical data. So what we did was uh, at WFAA, me and one of the other uh, you'll love this Dale, one of the other Aggies that works for me. He's uh, he's one of our great meteorologists at WFA, Kyle Roberts, but he. Uh, he spent a lot of time looking at historical numbers, and so I gave him the task of looking up all these years and let's figure out which ones were El Ninos and La Nina. So we put the data together ourselves because we couldn't find it anywhere. I'd love to see that sometimes. Uh, I will often reference the uh, Palmer Modified Drought Index because you can mm-hmm. look at that over time and, and get a good feel. Um albeit through the rearview mirror, so to speak. You're looking at what has happened in the past, but it's a good way for those of us that do watch the weather to be able to kind of characterize what the, the last 18 months have been or so forth. So, again, as quail hunters, we're keenly interested in that, and that's part of your resume we didn't talk about, Pete. So let's jump back. You are a bird hunter, correct? I grew up – I've been bird hunting so long. I grew up in southern Illinois, as I mentioned, and there's pictures of me as a little boy. I mean, I'm probably four or five out walking with my dad, quail hunting on these little farms in southern southern and central Illinois, quail hunting and, and rabbit hunting with him, you know, so the, the beagles would find, you know, rabbits and, and dad would shoot them. And then the Britneys that he always had, you know, they, they would point the quail. So, 
it was, it was, I remember the pictures, but I don't remember it because I was like four or five and my dad would take me out. But then as I got older, I certainly remember hunting those, those little farms with my dad. So I grew up, you know, a bird hunting and, you know, I don't know any better. Fortunately, Dale, my wife's father grew up bird hunting too. So she, she doesn't know any different. So when I say I'm going quail hunting, she's like, okay, because that's what she grew up with. So it's been a perfect marriage. <laughs> uh, great. It's, uh, I'm, mine is very understanding. Uh, and I often uh, tout to people that in 1974, I had to get married. It had nothing to do with the maternal status of my bride to be. It was because my future father-in-law had the best hunting in Harmon County, Oklahoma. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, those in-laws can that could be a, a great thing. Well, let's jump back to the weather now. Uh, we've got your bona fides as far as your bird hunter. Okay. And so, El Nino Southern Oscillation. Now, I first began to hear that phrase. I don't know, fifteen, twenty years ago. Uh, it, it's become popularized since that time. Has has it always been in existence in you guys' jargon? It has, yeah. I mean, we've talked about Enso for, I mean, I've been doing this now, it'll be 30 years this upcoming summer. But yeah, as long, I'd say certainly for the last 20 years, um, I remember talking about Enso. And you're right, I mean, just the acronym El Nino and the Southern Oscillation. So E N, you know, S O, but. Yeah, but for folks, you know, listening to this, you know, Enso's just kind of that generic name for the, the, I guess, the periodic fluctuation in the sea surface temperatures out in the equatorial Pacific. So when when we have those sea surface, te- so they have a like they're when they're normal. We'll call I'm I'm doing air quotes here. When they're normal, that's when we have a neutral phase. When those sea surface temperatures in the Pacific, the equatorial Pacific, when they're warmer than normal, that's when we have El Nino. When those equatorial waters in the Pacific are cooler than normal, that's when we have La Nina. And what happens is, think of, think of the, the Pacific Ocean like a, like a boiling pot of water, right? So when they're warmer than normal, what happens? You know, that boiling pot of water, steam is rising up into the, up into the air. So when you have a body of water that large as the equatorial Pacific and it's warmer than normal, it emits a higher moisture content into the atmosphere. And what does that do? It just shifts the global weather pattern. It just shifts the jet stream. It physically moves the jet stream. And then the jet stream is in a different position uh, across the globe. So, um, and, and when it's cooler than normal, well, there's not as much moisture content rising into the atmosphere and the jet stream has moved yet again, a different direction. So, and, and no two El Ninos or La Ninas are the same in the Pacific. You have different areas of water in the equatorial Pacific. You know, it might be the Western part of the equatorial Pacific that's warmer than normal or cooler than normal, or it might be the, the Eastern part of the Pacific that's warmer than normal and cooler than normal. But, but the, this was all noticed, Dale. I mean, I'm sure you've, you've read about this. I mean, this was all noted by Peruvian fishermen, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And they noticed that there were times around Christmas that they caught more fish than other, other, you know, Christmas times. And that's all about the water. You know, I mean, for, you know, I'm an outdoorsman like you. I, I mean, I'm a number one, I'm a, I'm a wing shooter. I'm a bird hunter, but I like to fly fish. 
But we know when the water temperature is a certain, you know, in a certain range, the fish are going to bite better because they're feeding differently. Well, those those fishermen uh, down uh, in the equatorial Pacific, you know, off the coast of South America, they started noticing this. So this has been documented for, you know, uh, hundreds and hundreds of years. So so that's that's what ENSO is, and that's what El Nino and La Nina are. So my uh, my apologies if I've uh, if I've uh, d- diverged a little here from our path. No, that's perfect. And, and I, I guess the question I would have of you, Pete, is what makes those sea surface temperatures change? Uh, and I mean, we're gonna we're gonna delve into climate change just a little bit, there, but. What's causing that fluctuation in, in temperatures out there? Is it well? That's that's one of the things. That's one of that's a good question. That's one of the things you're trying to figure out right now. So it's the ocean. The ocean currents play a big part. You know, uh, the the solar um, uh, solar activity plays plays a big part in our you know in our climate. That's something that's not uh, too well have, have understood at this point. Certainly, a lot better today than it was you know ten, twenty, thirty years ago. But but there's a number of factors that play in that play into that. Pete, as we look back on this last year, 2021, the weather event that gripped us literally was what's generically called the snowpocalypse that happened about uh, Valentine's Day last year. And again, happened during a La Nina winter phase. It's just one of those fluke events. Is there any way you can dissect or uh, explain? Is that just chaos, or, or what? What happened there? It's, explain as far as what happened with that that winter event that we had. Correct. That February fourteen, fifteen, yeah. uh, Valentine's Day yeah. massacre. Yeah, you know, and, and I, I I remember hearing you know the politicians down in Austin say you know this was unprecedented. This this has never happened before. Blah blah blah. And I'm like, well, that's that's not true. I mean, I had to go all the way. You know. You know, looking up all these La Nina, this La Nina stuff, I mean, so we're, we're pretty proficient with looking up numbers. I mean, that's what we do all day. We look at data. We look at numbers. And I'm like, well, this isn't unprecedented. I mean, this this has happened before. We've been we've been as cold as this. I mean, there were some there were some record cold, uh, but not that far away from the current. It's not like, you know, we had been you know, we, we were down to 20 below and the closest we had ever been below was 20 above. I mean, yeah, we, a couple of days we had some record cold, but it wasn't like it was uh, that different than, than uh, the old record that we broke by a degree or so. But then most of those days, it wasn't even record cold. Um, so it wasn't unprecedented. You go back and you can find uh, times in the eighties and in the seventies, certainly in the fifties and uh, the thirties when we had, we had temps this cold, but what was, what was different, Dale, was that, you know, we have a whole different, I mean, there's millions more people living here now than ever lived here before. And, and the, 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 the difference was the, the weather pattern wasn't, it wasn't unprecedented, but the number of people that it impacted was un, unprecedented. So that, that was a problem that, that we had here with that was there were so many more people living in Texas than the last time it was this cold during the dead of the winter. I mean, I I forget the numbers. It was like 15 or 20 million more people now than there were back then. Is it it just media hype or is there something real, uh, especially since last uh, month when we had those uh, tornadoes rip through Kentucky about the severity 
of some of these weather events. And in the case of the Kentucky tornadoes, the seasonality of them, I mean, that's something we typically think of as June, not December. Is there anything beyond chance uh, as you think about that and the, the severity of that snowpocalypse event as well? Or, I mean, are things getting worse? Uh, certainly some. Yeah, so, so I, I think your question is, can we attribute that tornado outbreak or that February event to climate change. Is that is that your question? That would be pretty close, yes, sir. <laughs> you want me to wade into that quagmire, don't you, Dale? Only as you dare. <laughs> the answer is possibly. You know, I, 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 I'm, I'm reluctant to assign every extreme meteorological event to climate change. Um, for several reasons. No, number one, you know, uh, you know. So think of the Texas population. So today it's about 30 million people. In 1980, it was like half that, right? So, you know, we had that big February event, and all of these, you know, several hundred, whatever the number was, a hundred and some people died. Uh, but we had that have something similar happen in the 70s, the 80s, and the uh, 70s and 80s, and and back in the 50s. Um, was that because it, why did that happen then? Well, if it happened today because of climate change, then the numbers were similar back in the 70s with that climate change. Um, so is it, are, we, are, are, are we experiencing climate change right now? Absolutely we are. I look at the numbers every day. We're, we're certainly warmer now than we've ever been. So climate change is real. But can we attribute the February winter issue or – the tornado outbreak to climate change. I'm, I'm reluctant to assign individual events to climate change because I just don't think we know enough. I think we need to we need to learn more now. Um, I also think that our awareness of events we're just a lot more aware in our world today than people were back in the 70s. Well, we have social media. We all have cell phones now. Um, you know, we, our population is so much higher, you know, um, so climate change is real climate change is happening, but I'm just, I'm reluctant to assign every, um, serious event to climate change. And I know that's not popular in the meteorology community, and I'm not denying that climate change is real climate change is happening. But I, I do like to caution folks that, well, you know, I, you know, we've had extreme events in the past too. So what, what, what's what's the designator for those? So I just I'm a little cautious with with every bad weather event being because of climate change because we've had bad weather events as long as the Earth's been around. Let me share some counsel that I learned back about 20 years ago when I got embroiled in some predator politics. And uh, people calling for my resignation, this kind of thing, letters to the editor and so forth. And I uh, I redefined a phrase called sound science because everybody wants their decisions to be based on sound science. Well, my new definition of sound science says if the science sounds like it corroborates your side of the argument, it is by definition sound science. If not, it's simply misguided conjecture. And there's a lot of people, that, you know, in the COVID world and uh, – I mean, we could be uh, conspiracy theorists if we wanted to be, but um, we're not going to go down that that avenue right now. Let's stay uh, kind of focused. Pete, one of the 
one of the terms that I've heard, and it, it's it's a fairly new term to me at least, over the last 15 years, is the idea of mega droughts. Are you mm-hmm. familiar with what the talk is there and, and the banter around these 30 to 50 year drought cycles? Yeah. No, I, I, mega, I think, you know, mega droughts, are, I don't know when it was coined that term, uh, but, but certainly mega droughts, you know, it's nothing new to the world. Uh, and, and you're right, Dale. I mean, a mega drought is just a period of extreme dryness that lasts for decades. Um, and, you know, within that period, there could be some occasional wet years here and there, some wet months here and here and there, but overall a mega drought is, is, you know, uh, a drought that just lasts for, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Uh, I'm a big history buff. Um, you may not have known this, but at one point in my my life when I was a young guy, not the 100-year-old person I am now that my kids think, but uh, I wanted to be a history professor. And so I've always had a passion for history. And and one part of history that I love is is uh, the United States history from, you know, back in the, you know, the early 1700s uh, uh, through, you know, like the late 1800s. Uh, and I, I, I read all the time, all of these books, uh, and I'm not a big, uh, uh, fiction guy. I prefer nonfiction. Again, I'm a history guy, so I, I want to know what really happened, but I look at the history of our country, you know, back in the, you know, the 1800s, you know, I mean, in, in the, the, the movement West, you know, the movement from, you know, the Mississippi river and East and how folks wanted to, you know, move to Texas or, or to California. And, and these historians and these settlers back in those days, the frontier people, they talked about the extreme drought and the extreme heat, you know. So, you know, I, I know that everybody's worldview centers around their lifetime, you know, and I'm in my 50s now. And, every, you know, everybody my age, you know, is like, well, you know, I don't ever remember, he, you know, reading about this or hearing about that. I'm like, well. This has been going on <laughs> as long as people have been keeping records. These these droughts out in California and 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 all of that, and certainly in Texas, as you mentioned at the beginning of this. I mean, Texas is a boom or bust state. You know, I tell everybody all the time. You know, we're in a drought right now across the entire state of Texas. You know, South Texas uh, is is fine, but the Rolling Plains is moderate to severe drought right now. Well, you and I both know how it's going to end. It's going to end with heavy rain and flooding. You know. Every drought ends with a flood, but, and that's our state. And, and that's, that's where we are, you know, in, in you know, where the, this country is positioned in, in our latitudinal position is we're just in a part of the world from a weather standpoint, we have these big swings. So, um, it's just interesting in Texas, you know, uh, but if you look at history, certainly if you look at, uh, um, uh, meteorologically, meteorological history, you can see we, we, we're boom or bust. So these mega droughts, it may be a relatively new term in the last, you know, 15, 25 years or so, but the concept is not, is not new. It's been happening as long as the country's been here. Well, from a crowd perspective, one of these days, I want to host a drought appreciation day because we tend to curse drought, but again, as a student of quail, we typically have our boom populations, 2015-16 being a good example, after a two- to three-year-old drought. So I like to say that drought cocks the hammer and rain pulls the trigger. 
the hammer's cocked in West Texas. Now we're waiting on you to pull the trigger, Pete. So I'll tell you what, I don't have any rain in my, you know, for the rest of December, there's not enough rain to alleviate the drought. You know, for the next 10, about the next two weeks, there's, there's, there's nothing, there's no good old fashioned soaking rains in our forecast. There could be a sprinkler or shower here or there, but I do not see the drought conditions improving uh, for the remainder of uh, 2021. Well, that's not what we like to hear, but uh, I know you speak the truth. Uh, Peter, as we prepared for this podcast, it, it, it kind of came upon me, kind of the weather situation and the forecast kind of puts you in a dilemma, I suspect, because if you announce on Thursday night that there's an 80% chance of rain, I bet 90% of your urban audience think, oh, rats, it's ruining my podcast. <laughs> While everybody in the further west will be embracing you, do you ever get caught on the on the horns of a meteorological dilemma like that? <laughs> I do. You know, I mean, you know, especially being, you know, my passion is, is, is bird hunting. Um, the guy's always like, oh, you said there's, you know, there's an 80% chance of this happening. Uh, are we still going to go? And I'm like, I'm going to go. I'm going to get up and I'm going to look at the radar and determine, you know, what's happening right then. So, you know, I, I, I adjust my plans. But I cancel anything until I get up that morning to look at the radar. But but I, I'll tell you what, you know, you brought up 80%. Here's the deal. People don't know what that means. And and as a medi- meteorologically, we haven't done a very good job communicating what 80% means or 50, a 50% chance of rain or an 80% chance of rain. And people confuse that all the time. And, and you know, I'm not giving – this isn't Vegas. I'm not giving you Vegas odds. You know, but what I'm saying is, and I have a forecast, every meteorologist, so you're out in San Angelo. So those meteorologists out there, they have their forecast area, right? And that forecast area, look at it as like a, 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 you know, it's a pie. Okay. So for Dallas, Fort Worth, we go from almost to Wichita Falls to Paris, Texas. We go just down to, to Waco. And so that's a big area. So when I say there's an 80% chance of rain, the more accurate way to describe that would be would to say 80% of the area will see rain. So it's it's coverage. I'm saying 80% of the 100% will see measurable rain. But people have all these weird thoughts. They come up with their own, well, he means this or he means that. I'm like, no, that's that's not it. I'm not giving you Vegas odds. And, and, and 80, uh, you know, if I say 90%, that doesn't mean it's going to be heavy rain. So it's just the rain it's defined as if I say 80%, that means 80% of the 100% is going to see measurable rain, which is 0.01 is measurable. So people are like, oh my gosh, you said we were going to have, you know, a 90% chance of rain. And I only had a 10th of an inch at my house. I'm like, well, the rainfall coverage percent has nothing to do with the rainfall total. That's apples and oranges. They're both fruits, but they're two different, they're two different fruits. So now if I say there's an 80% chance of heavy rain and we could see an inch, there you go. And that's how we uh, should be speaking. And I try to consistently do that. But uh, yeah, there's the, it's uh, it's interesting. People have misconceptions all the time about stuff, and a lot of it is because people make up their own forecasts, or or we're just not good communicators. Well, 
you're in a business that has a lot of armchair meteorologists, as I'm in the wildlife business, there's a lot of armchair wildlife biologists too, that oftentimes, I'm going to say most of the time, don't appreciate the complexity of the whole equation. Now, they want to simplify it to where one plus one equal two, and as you know, there's there's more variables oftentimes involved in that. <laughs> I'm kind of winding down a little bit, Pete. I've got some uh, questions that I often hear, and I just wanted you to get your perspective on them. The wind turbines uh, have popped up, especially over the last 20 years or so, and uh, I think the lar- world's largest wind farm there is kind of southwest Abilene, scoots around, skirts around, back towards Rolling Plains Crow Research Ranch. Naysayers uh, sometimes say that's affected the local weather patterns. What say of ye? Well, that's that anecdotal stuff, you know. Um, I, I've never seen – I have, there, there's zero research out there to show – that wind turbines are impacting the weather patterns. I've never seen it. If it exists, I'd love to read it. Uh, I've looked for it, uh, but nothing is out there that I'm aware of. And I hear this all the time. I mean, anecdotally, well, you know what? Before we had these wind turbines, it rained every, every, it rained consistently, you know, over this period of time. I'm like, well, I don't know. I'm looking at the weather data and it's, again, it's boom or bust in Texas you know, since Texas, since before Texas was Texas. So, uh, you know, and, and it's the same thing I hear all the time with, you know, I live by the river and, you know, these tornadoes never, when I worked in Cincinnati for nine years, people said, well, you know, the tornadoes never come here because the, the bluffs along the river, uh, they buffet the, the storms. And so they never touch down. And then I guess uh, it was like uh, the sixth out of the ninth year I was there, a tornado rolled down the river and, and killed a number of people. So, you know, it's it's this anecdotal stuff. Well, I remember this one time. Well, yeah, but what about the other 595 times, you know? So so there's no data out there to say that wind turbines are impacting the weather patterns. Right. Um, regarding tornadoes and going down rivers or following certain paths, don't tell that to the people in Moore, Oklahoma. They seem to be uh, especially cursed relative to that. But uh, that's another Well, story. but the thing, the, thing, the thing with Moore, though, Moore, there's got to be a magnet in town. I don't know what the deal is with Moore other than they're in the heart of Tornado Alley um, and just bad luck. Um, it's just a terrible deal up there how many tornadoes those folks have uh, dealt with uh, as long as that area has existed. While we're on the subject of Oklahoma and your interest in history, I often quote George Nye, who was a former governor of Oklahoma and before that a history teacher, and he often said, we we uh, we study the past. Let me get quote correct. We study the past and apply it to the present, that we may affect the future. And I use that a lot. And I guess it could be a good segue into our last segment today, and that being weather modification. Uh, are you a proponent of cloud seeding? Where is the science behind that, or is that just too much to to cover here in a, in a minute or so, Pete? Probably, probably in a short period of time. It's 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 that's pretty involved topic uh am i am i pro or against uh cloud seeding i know there's a, more research happening now than has ever happened before my only concern is the unintended consequences that's that's my concern with that with if we start trying to alter mother nature what do we what do we do down the road i mean what what other issues what are those unintended consequences and uh, I, I don't know that we know enough right now. 
as my preacher often points out, you're free to choose your actions, but you're not free to choose the consequences. And yeah, <laughs> some of those they may seem apparent, but they're probably more transparent than what we think. Pete, um, we all use, we all have our smartphones today, and we have our various weather apps. Do you have a favorite weather app that you recommend? I do. I absolutely do. My my mom calls me all the time and she says, oh my gosh, I see it's going to, this is going to happen. You know, she still lives up in Illinois. She goes, I see this, I see that. I said, well, that's not right. Where do you see that? Well, honey, I've got the, I've got the weather channel app on my phone. I'm like, oh my gosh, there could not be a worse one out there. Now I know people, and I, again, I, I've got nothing against the weather channel, but it's just, it's just, it's just not that good of an app. Uh, the app, the app that I, or the other one that's really bad is weather bug. Stay away from those. Well, but Pete, I remember that, you know, it's right with the temperatures. Well, I mean, you know, it's the broken clocks right twice a day too, you know. Uh, for my money, there's hands down, nothing's even close. In the meteorological community, if you're going to have a weather app, go with dark sky. Dark sky is hands down the best weather app out there. Um, with just forecast, with your forecast. If you want a weather app for radar, the gold standard in the meteorological community is radar scope. Storm chasers use it. I have it behind the scenes in the weather center when I'm tracking tornadoes. I have it on my phone, on my iPad. Um, it is hands down the gold standard. You ask any meteorologist in the United States, the best radar app, he's going to say, he or she's going to say radar scope. And the best just plain weather app is Dark Sky. Are those free apps or are they for nope. charge for free? Nope, they're for they're minimal amount. I think uh, I think Radar Scope is uh, like ten bucks a year. I think Dark Sky is like two bucks or something like that. It's pretty inexpensive. Okay, shifting gears just a little bit. What about uh, again as a quail hunter? I'm always interested to know: Did I get rain? At my little Ponderosa up in Oklahoma, or did it rain down at Hebronville? And so I use farm logs for that, which serves me pretty well, and it'll show me what last night's precipitation was, uh, and I can look at that cumulatively over the, the last 10-year period. Are there others out there, or do, which one do you use, or, or do you recommend? I use farm logs. You know, if, if I just want an app or a website that I can go to that, that's easy, um, I have access to stuff that's that's not on the public domain. That's what I use all the time. But but I I've used farm logs, and I think it's I think it's a fantastic uh, piece of night. Uh, it's a it's a great tool to use, and it's really good information. I like farm logs a lot. I do too. Uh, Pete, that's, uh, we appreciate your time today on the weather and, and your expertise there. Again, I want to bounce back to your hunting forays over the last uh, 20 or 30 years, whatever. Uh, just briefly, tell tell me about your favorite hunt and your favorite dog. Well, my my favorite hunt, I think back uh, when I first moved here in 05, I had a, uh, a lease out in Hall County that was halfway between uh, beautiful Esteline, Texas and Turkey, Texas. And uh, that would have been the winter of 05 in we yeah oh five oh six in Dale we were finding forty cubbies. I'm a foot hunter, and I'm a foot hunter because I like to eat. And if I don't keep walking, I won't be able to wear my suits. So I'm a foot hunter, and we were finding forty cubbies a day. And I had just moved to one of the reasons I wanted to move to Texas not only for the job, 
but I, I just, I, I grew up quail hunting. I just wanted to, you know, Texas is the best place for wild quail. And so it was a huge, huge reason for me moving here. But uh, it was, it was the, this lease that I used to have out there and the birds. I mean, it was an abundance of, uh, it was an embarrassment of riches. We had so many birds back that, that year, if you recall. And, uh, and it was just, it was just, it was just a lot of fun. It was just a lot of fun. So that was my best, my best hunt, uh, in Texas. And my best bird dog was a Brittany named chief. And, uh, I had to put him down a couple of years, two years ago, yesterday, as a matter of fact, uh, I saw that memory pop up on my wife's Facebook page, but, uh, yeah, he was just fantastic. And I've had, I'm a, I'm a Brittany guy. I've had a lot of Britneys through the years, but he was, he was, he was my, he was a bird finding machine. He didn't want to retrieve a whole lot, but boy, he could, he could, if he pointed, you knew there was, you knew there was a, uh, you knew there was a bird there. And, uh, so chief was my hands down my best dog, but I got three others right now that are, you know, one of them may give chief a run for his money. We'll see. But, uh, but, uh, yeah, that's my best hunt was out in Hall County and, uh, my best bird dog, a Brittany named chief. Well, great. Like, it's always good to run into, you know, every bird hunter has their favorite point and their favorite dogs and their favorite hunts. And uh, just like, you know, I like Facebook and that it revives those memories every now and then. And so uh, <laughs> thank you for having those memories for us. And we do appreciate your expertise and uh, we'll continue to watch you and look forward to working with you both with the Park City's Quail and the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation. And with that, Gary, I'm going to send it back to you in the studio, and we look forward to visiting with y'all next month. Thank you so much, Dr. Dale, and thank you, Pete Delkus, for your contributions and passion for quail and quail hunting in Texas. If you'd like more information about the Dr. Dale on Quail podcast, go to the website of the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation at quailresearch.org. You'll find past episodes and more information about the work of the foundation there on the website. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. Thank you for spending time with us today. Until next time. Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on Quail possible. Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at GordianSons.com.